Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. The trailers for this movie are, well, they're as good as the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Is that an appropriate way to say it? I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, there, my goodness. There's the, a certain magic. There's a certain magic. <laughs> I The trailer that I got to, the, uh, the other trailers, it's like two minutes is like an action trailer. It's fine. But the I'm thinking this is a teaser. Uh, the 1991 teaser. It's a minute and nine seconds. And it has the sexiest voiceover. I think this guy is asking me out. He's like telling me what to do when I go to Southern California. Oh, it's fantastic. It is really, really great. In fact, uh, yeah, no, we're gonna we're gonna play this one. We're definitely gonna play this one. Um, <laughs> it it shows off the sultry, sexy side of Point Break. How do you? How does the trailer, or, or I should even say, how do the trailers uh, help you connect with the film, Andy? It's it's a really interesting uh, mix of trailers, and, and I guess it's the um, early '90s way to uh, to kind of pitch an action film. I mean, the first uh, kind of the teaser that you're talking about it certainly has has an odd bit of humor. What with the uh, you know uh, with that sultry voice pitching, you know, kind of the magic of of the nightlife almost is what it's it's celebrating. And it actually shows over a sunset. It shows Swayze sucking a lime out of a woman's mouth. <laughs> it sure like, does. Superimposed over. <laughs> The blistering sunset of Southern California. So it's pretty sexy. magical. It really so is sexy. magical. It's I actually uh, I like it better than the other trailer only because the other trailer feels very much like uh, you know they were um, pushing to do an action trailer, 
at this particular point in time. And it felt too long. It honestly felt like it really bogged down and it felt like it ended like three times. I felt like, oh, well, here's the end of the trailer. Oh, nope, it's still going. It's like it's like this is the the Return of the King trailer. <laughs> you know, in the world of trailers, <laughs> this is Return of the King because it keeps ending. It's like, oh, and here's an ending. Oh, nope, it's still going. Oh, yeah. Okay, it's over. Nope, nope, it's still going. Oh. Oh, there's a little bit more. And it really just kind of <laughs> overstayed its welcome. You really get the feeling that the editor like kept finding really delicious one-liners, like really delicious. He's got all the material from the movie and he cuts the trailer together and it's exactly the way he wants it. And then he like accidentally scrubs through a fantastic line. He's like, well, I better use that. And that's what it feels like to me. And, you know, as we've talked about in past trailers, they are very, very much um, wanting to always put their big moments in the trailer. So, yeah. of course, we see Patrick Swayze jumping out of the airplane. Yeah, uh, that's that's, that's something the that money like shot, the big money shot. And of course, they're going to show it in the trailer yeah. and not save it for the film. It probably uh, the, yeah. it probably literally costs them the most <laughs> when you think of insurance on Swayze falling out of an airplane. I'll bet well, it costs more than the than any other any of the other did you did you hear the story about that? Yeah, it was like the, they they had to they, they had to wait to the very last thing, right? Yeah, they wouldn't let him do it, and yeah. it didn't sound like insurance was covering it. They're just like, you want to go That's do it? Right. You go do it. That's right. They, and they wait, but you the very can't last do minute. it. Yeah, you can't do it while we're making the movie, and so they finished the movie, and they then they went and got that shot, which I think is great. When Swayze is once again worthless to them. <laughs> right studios, you could die man, and it studios. won't matter what are you gonna do <laughs> on the coast of southern california you can only surf party and make love for so long before it's time to go to work rock and roll 27 banks in three years. Anything to catch the perfect wave. Patrick Swayze. Fear causes hesitation. And hesitation will cause your worst fears to come true. Keanu Reeves. You think I joined the FBI and learned to serve? Point break. Adios, amigo! Trail, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey! And we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, we're going deep cover with Johnny Utah in Catherine Bigelow's 1991 surfing icon, Point Break. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy the show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back channel conversations on Discord, help us pick movies for upcoming series, and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk movies, trailers, and more. And I bet we'll talk more Oscars uh, on this coming week's show. Plus, we do have a battle of the lists of movies related to our show that week. This next week, in honor of this film, we're comparing lists of our favorite movies where someone has to go undercover. So just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. You know what? I think, uh, is it is it safe to say this movie is unfairly lampooned? I think that's fair to say. It was better than I remembered. I expected to go in and just be laughing start to finish. 
right? I expected it to be just a mess. It is not a mess. I liked it so much better than Near Dark. I it, they're just there are a few words to describe the the comparison. It's just deep and vast crevasse between these two movies. Uh, I I actually feel like I I had a great time uh, in this movie. And yeah, there are some things that are ridiculous, but my sense is that the the cultural gestalt has uh, or the cultural memory of this film is that it's a ridiculous surfing cop movie and it turns out the surfing isn't as big a deal uh, as they make it or as memory would make it well i i thought there was plenty of surfing in it i mean and if there was anything that i had forgotten is how much of like the training montage type of stuff there is there's a lot more than i remembered <laughs> like when Lori petty is teaching him how to surf and everything i'm like oh there's really a lot of surfing in this um but that being said i i really do agree with you i had so much fun with this movie my my recollection because i probably haven't seen this since college this was one of those movies that we would watch in the dorms and everyone would kind of make fun of Keanu Reeves because this, this I think, became between this and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure really personified the kind of the the joke that um, everyone made of Keanu Reeves, kind of that woe surfer dude sort of guy that he seemed to be. Um, and it's funny because that that seemed to linger for so long. In fact, it may still be lingering. Oh, it still um, lingers, <laughs> d- despite the fact that I think he's proven himself so many times that he can uh, do so much more. And so I think it's really funny that uh, this did kind of set the in a way it kind of sets the high bar for what that Keanu Reeves <laughs> personality is like that, like the whole like, I mean, and it comes from moments like when he's talking to uh, uh, John C. McGinley, his his FBI boss, who does say, do you have anything to report? And he's like, I caught my first tube today. I mean, that, that really is kind yeah. of like exactly why we make fun of Keanu Reeves. Uh, in all jest, I, I still think that he does such a, a great job in the film and, and has a lot of fun with Patrick Swayze. And I think Bigelow at the helm um, really made some uh, nice choices. And I had a blast watching him. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, back to not to just land on Keanu, you know, too hard. I, I think he actually did a fantastic job uh, actually splitting the FBI, the young FBI agent persona and the undercover, you know, Johnny Utah, the surfer, uh, you know, bit. And it wasn't that much of a of a what's the word of a, of a caricature, um, you know, when when he's out playing football on the beach. I, I don't get a sense that he's that. Oh, whoa, hey, dude, you know, he's not the, the Bill and Ted Keanu. He, he's very much the, the undercover cop Keanu. And I think it was it was played really smart. There are a few moments where, you know, the the general overacting <laughs> in this movie really shines. And uh, they, they usually involve Busey. <laughs> Um, who who is also a gem? Let me say that guy's a national treasure. <laughs> and when they are clearing the car from the first drop, and it's night, and he says, and Keanu says, "Are you mad? Are you angry? Does it feels good, right?" That whole sequence, uh, that is a forehead slapping moment. That is a forehead yeah, slapping like, sequence. I was I was fighting in Quezon when you yeah. were wiping poop on your face as a baby or whatever. Who does know. that? Who does that? I don't know babies <laughs> who do that. Babies don't do that, Busey. But that, yeah, that that also really I think said a lot about Busey, and just kind of him as a as an actor and what he was uh, what he was doing. And and honestly, I mean, he had 
uh, a few years before this, I mean, he had a, a major motorcycle accident. He um, was dead. He was a dead yeah, man. He, was, he yeah. was dead. He had major brain injuries and uh, was basically uh, brought back. And uh, yeah, I think um, I think that he suffered a little bit and his craziness certainly seems to show. But I mean, you know, I, I, I really still enjoy watching him. I mean, he fits the energy of the film. And that's another element in this movie that uh, just makes it work as well as it does. I absolutely agree. And I, I think that, you know, those little little moments of business, um, you know, it's, it, I, I think that's what sort of gives the, the movie its its off kilter memory. But it, it generally is a is a, a pretty darn good heist film and uh, with, with some interesting and, um, you know, I think a deeper sense of presence uh, than than people give it credit credit for um, and uh, not to mention some just incredibly opinionated action styling from Catherine Bigelow and I think it's a it's a real standout our deep scene dive tonight is is a absolute centerpiece um, for me in this film I, I think she just really knows how to put the camera in the center of the action and I think she does a great job so the surf we, we, we got to start with the surfing uh, which I think was actually really interesting building this this set of four guys uh, who are um, you know the essential surf crew and, and actually it starts with a whole a much larger set of guys and i think this is a really interesting mechanic when when utah goes undercover his job is to figure out who the four-man crew is and uncover them because they are going to be the unit within the unit and so he has to get to know them in the mix of all of the other uh surfers in, including the red hot chili peppers <laughs> right which is weird that was a strange little bit uh, yeah yeah when uh, Anthony Kiedis pops in there. That was very strange. That was yeah. very, very strange. But so, he fit. He, he did fit. a great job. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. He, he was perfect. He was perfect. So what did you think of the of the surfing uh, in terms of the action element? Did they did did she treat it fairly? And was it a was it a good element or should this have just been another heist film? No, I think I, I, I think that the the people involved in creating this story um, had a good idea of taking this this idea of these bank robbers and connecting it to the world of these surfers um, and finding this really interesting character in Bodhi that Patrick Swayze plays where he really is kind of this this Zen guy who's who's I mean yes he's in it to make money but there was some uh, element of it that um, as he says it was never about about the money it's like there's something about kind of the um, just, you know, almost like finding yourself or the challenge of it and everything and you know, like connecting yourself to something bigger. And um, that's something I really liked about uh, him as a character and kind of that Zen, Zen way that he played it, which um, I think Patrick Swayze just has that energy anyway. And so having him play Bodhi and, and kind of being the leader of this robbery surf gang, um, and then actually having him out there surfing and, and all these guys doing their surfing and everything, it, it, actually, it ended up creating this element of the film that, that gave it something more that I don't think you would see in a different sort of film. And I know this film has been compared to like the Fast and the Furious and, and that whole 
um, chain of films. And I mean, really, you go back to the very first, the Fast and the Furious film, it really is kind of the same story. But I think what both of these films do is they they really envelop um, you and particularly the undercover person into the world in which he is going into. And that's what they do really well here is they integrate Johnny Utah, Utah really nicely into this kind of world of surfing. I think so too, uh, and and it didn't it didn't seem like a joke. It doesn't seem like a joke when you're watching the movie. It really doesn't. It feels like these guys actually have a purpose. Uh, they staged, you know, in terms of casting, they ended up with these guys who are, um, you know, you obviously have the sort of athletes and the athleticism of, um, you know, Swayze, and uh, but they actually, you know, stack the deck with some guys who are actually, you know, quite uh, exceptional surfers and and career surfers, and that that makes a difference uh, in in the look of the film. It actually looks legit. Like it, it, it feels very much like these guys are devoted, uh, and, and and not just to surfing, but to the extreme lifestyle. We already mentioned the the skydiving. Um, there, there's some fascinating uh, and really beautiful skydiving at the end. And I, you know, I, I, on on this point, I'm interested in you talking about the difference between this Point Break and the remake Point Break. Uh, how they handled the the skydiving. I have not. I didn't have the chance to watch the remake. So, um, you know, what's your sense of the skydiving? You know, I didn't hate it as much as the critics did. Um, I still felt that there were elements of fun in that film. Um, I, I, I thought it was interesting the way that they kind of reworked it to have these guys. Uh, it really was like there. I mean, it was a group of people. It was far more than just surfing. They were trying to complete this legendary uh, thing of these eight, you know, impossible tasks where you're you know paired with nature or something like that it was kind of a you know silly thing but um you got to see some really interesting like extremist sporting things going on and i thought that was kind i think of it's exciting. just i think it's just extreme extreme sports it's not extremist, things. extremist sports extremist sports I, extremist are sporting things Those are i different. think that's the new term for it <laughs> extremist sporting things <laughs> I think they're. I think they're uh, going to have a whole category at the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, a, like alpine and an extremist alpine. Exactly, it's, it's very different. Exactly, it's true. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, that movie it's nowhere near as as good. It still is entertaining, um, but it's just it it uh, you know the the story I think was a lot less interesting. But um, but watching the all the bits that they did of the extremist sporting things <laughs> was really uh, was really interesting. In fact, the skydiving was, uh, I think, the the smallest part of it. And that was just an early scene when they're uh, stealing money out of a plane. They're not even stealing money. They're they're dumping money out of a plane into a poor village in Mexico. Yeah, I feel like they gave that away in the trailer. Point yeah, and it's the, super the early in the movie anyway, yeah. so it, yeah. it's just one of those things. You know, to that end, I, I mean, they certainly tried to amp all of that sort of stuff up in the second film. I don't think any of it works nearly as well as the first film. I think the first film really does capture that kind of that Zen essence better. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of that is because um, Catherine Bigelow just I, I felt like she had she seems to connect really well with um, with uh, the subjects in her film, whether it's this or uh, bomb diffusing in the Hurt Locker. You know, she seems to find that way in to really have her actors connect in a level with 
uh, what they're really doing, where I buy it completely. One of the interesting things about when you look at this at this group and this particular kind of approach to the film, the criminal element of the film, is that there is a sense of humanity in these guys. You know, it's a, they yeah, they have the uh, uh, a little bit of the Robin Hood vibe where they're they're definitely stealing money and they're not giving it to the poor, uh, but they are they are taking it to you know to fund their adventures around the world but they are definitely doing it in a way that has some some heart and some humanity to it that they're doing it you know with insured money and they're not hurting anybody and that they have some principle and that actually is a stage for conflict in the group later and i think that works i think that gives us a real sort of a, a approach a, a personality for us to latch on to inside these guys because we're we, you know we are all torn in this in this same way you know and and uh, uh, so i think they make that uh, they make that really clear and really interesting i think that you know then we have the um, uh, the the love interest uh, the entrance of Lori Petty uh, as Tyler and her role sort of between two worlds. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I absolutely adore Lori Petty. I think we've only talked about her once. I think uh, so. Yeah. In um, uh, no, yeah, no crying in baseball. And uh, she's just delightful. And I think she's great in this movie. I think she's particularly great in this movie because she's cast so against type like this is not the type you would expect in this movie she knows it's not the type you'd expect in this movie that she is not that type uh and and i think she just plays it to a t yeah she she does that so well and she just takes that role and just embodies that surfer chick that's not just kind of the beach bimbo and it's great seeing her in this as the love interest and again, I think that goes a lot to uh, Bigelow's choices to find a way to tell a story that felt more authentic and had some more interesting stuff to think about and look at. And also that, you know, um, brings up an in another interesting comparison because I think Teresa Palmer, who is in the remake, um, is uh, just a lot less interesting. And they try to do some things with her part to, to um, spice it up a bit more in the remake. But that, I think, was one of the biggest uh, failings of that film is that relationship and how it ended up unfolding. That's sad. Yeah. I, you know, Teresa Palmer is not uh, has not ever quite wowed me. Uh, I wasn't thrilled when I saw her. I didn't think I was going to get much. Uh, like I said, they try to do some stuff with her in the film, but it's never set up and it just kind of turns into something that just it throws something at you suddenly at this point late in the film and it's like well that was an odd choice to throw in out of the blue and then that's it and so it's huh. it really kind of was a disappointing uh turn in that one well i you know i think the the only thing that really could have improved my impression of of you know point break is that you know had it been made at a time where like now like today where Lori Petty could have been the the strong dominating woman and you know not have and not have had to have the sex scene you know what i mean like this felt like this this is a movie that could have made it all the way through without the romance um, cuz that that angle for me was pretty anemic well and that leads to uh, one of my um my gripes with the film is she, um, you know, gets upset with him when she finds out that he's been lying to her. And I will say, I mean, I, you know, he's a terrible person. I mean, it's it's exactly what a, a copper and FBI agent's going to do. They're going to find a way to get in, and and he's a terrible person for exploiting the fact that her parents were killed when she was young, uh, to to get in close to her. 
And I mean, but that's then he terrible. changed his and mind, Andy. He changed his mind and really, really <laughs> fell in love. You're right. You're right. You're right, Utah. But no, the the problem is that um, it, it's not that she gets upset. I mean, I like that she gets upset, and and pretty much that's it. She should but then, get upset. That's a good thing. Yeah. But then you get to the end and, you know, she gets kidnapped and he's still trying to save her and all this stuff because he doesn't want her to get killed because he does have the feels. But then you get to the end and uh, they free her and they come together and reunite. And I'm like, why? I mean, I get, okay, maybe it's just because they're isolated in the middle of nowhere and she has no one else to say, oh, thank God I'm finally free from that psycho. Um, but still, it's just I didn't buy those moments of her all of a sudden and you know him coming together in in uh, each other's arms. I didn't either, and maybe that's what leaves me with the sour taste in my mouth about her and the the relationship angle. Like I'm really okay with her teaching him how to surf. I'm okay with them kind of being friends and being friendly, and then you know I the the benefit of um, you know twenty years of. Um, you know, and or more, God, good Lord, way too many years of, uh, you know, movies and relationship movies and cop movies is just it, it's hard to watch this and not feel a little bit fatigued, um, you know, in the that relationship. She's just I think she could have been a better character than that. And it's really disappointing to hear that they didn't do something smarter with, um, you know, the the remake. Uh, lots of opportunity for that. Yeah, and, and I'm trying not to spoil what happens in that because they do try to do something more interesting with her as a character. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work. I yeah. didn't think it would just fell flat. Let's talk about the law enforcement angle then. Uh, you know, as as old Keanu, Johnny Utah is uh, walking both sides. Uh, he's, his other world is uh, with Gary Busey and John C. McGinley is Ben Harp, uh, his boss. Yeah, I I think that it's a an effective story. I mean, I I don't mind it. I, it's again, it's it felt like '90s action writing, though. Like at the open, when you've got okay, he's the new guy in the, in the division. He's from the other coast, and he's got a boss who instantly has a gripe with him. Like it felt like we were watching something straight out of Beverly Hills Cop. You know, it has that vibe and. I, you know, I was like, eh, okay. It, it felt very much of its time. Uh, it wasn't that great. I still like John C. McGinley. I kind of, I, I like, I, I buy them all in their roles, but it was one of the kind of lamer elements of that uh, aspect of the story. I think John C. McGinley starts out on an enormous high. That walk and talk in the beginning uh, where he's welcoming is so, so good. It's so good. And his, I mean, he just, John, there are the very few actors who are more equipped, better equipped to handle 90s action movie police sergeant dialogue uh, than John C. McGlynn. It, it's like he it's was a very made specific, for it. It is very so specific. Specific. Tell me I'm not right. He is amazing, right. amazing in this part. And uh, even though it's brief, unfortunately, he sets the bar very high and goes way down from there. And and it's it becomes, you know, his screaming fit and the, the completely irrational good leader, bad subordinate angle that he takes on uh, against Johnny Utah without listening to the, you know, I don't know, evidence, uh, listening to his people. It just becomes, uh, it's just so tired. And I, I get really tired of seeing him, you know, it, it's not even that rewarding when he gets punched uh, because no, he's, and it, he's so ridiculous. That was pretty lame, yeah. And and you know what it is? I, I compare it to, um, you know, to Die Hard, 
right? Uh, which handles this, I think, better, but I'm trying to put my finger on why. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I just felt like there was, uh, well, I mean, that film allowed for more opportunities for conversations to happen, whether it's between McLean and uh, and the uh, the head of the department or the head of department and the FBI guys, or, you know, uh, just, I mean, there are Al in the head. Like yeah. there were just, there were a lot more people involved to kind of keep that going. Um, this one, I mean, McGinley started on a more, I mean, I still wasn't thrilled, but at least he was on, had a more interesting aspect to him. And then it just kind of went downhill from there and just became nothing but a caricature. Anyhow, I, I liked him uh, clearly more than you, but he definitely doesn't uh, he doesn't stand up over the course of, of the film. Um, and, you know, in fact, there are some really weird moments between Busey and uh, Keanu. But the nice thing about it is Busey is and, and Keanu at least are on the same page early on in the movie. Um, and, and I think that's something that's a little bit unique in their relationship that, in fact, um, you know, they agree. And uh, and it's not just one cop against the world. Uh, it's it becomes the two of them. Yeah, that was nice. All right. So how did this movie uh, how did this movie get made? Well, this was uh, this was something where I think it was the writer uh, Rick King who uh, had this idea. He was on the beach uh, reading the newspaper and the, it was talking about the high rate of bank robberies in L.A., and he was on the beach and he saw all these surfers and he just kind of had this idea of bringing it all together. And so he brought on this writer, Peter Iloff, who um, uh, he had write this script. And I, somehow I think he had known Peter like Peter had uh, a script that uh, the studio had optioned or something like an action film. And and King thought that he might be a guy to kind of take the take on this task of writing the script. So the two of them kind of put the story together and then Ilef wrote the script and uh, that was it. It was a script called Johnny Utah. And uh, that was the original name of the script. And at the time they got uh, Ridley Scott on to direct it and they did a casting call and uh, Matthew Broderick, they brought him on. Uh, they were going to, they offered him the role of Johnny Utah. Some other names of people that auditioned include Johnny Depp, Charlie Sheen, Val Kilmer, Willem Dafoe, even Patrick Swayze uh, auditioned as uh, Johnny Utah. Um, and, but that they, they started working on the script for, or on the film for this. And I think it sounds like they got five months into building all the sets and everything. And then something fell apart. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but the whole movie, uh, fell apart and, uh, it was shut down and, uh, and that was it. it the whole thing kind of, um, you know, was shelved again. And then it was four years later. Um, and everybody involved had gone away. And then James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow, they somehow came across it and um, they decided to rework the script a little bit. They kind of did their own pass of it and and uh, got it made. Now, I'm not exactly sure of the complete, like all those names that I rattled off as far as who auditioned for Johnny Utah. Were they auditioning when it was Ridley Scott's film or for Catherine Bigelow? I'm not exactly sure, but all those names kind of came by. I think Patrick Swayze actually auditioned for Bigelow and they ended up saying, no, we'd rather you play uh, Bodie. Uh, but yes, the film uh, was renamed from Johnny Utah to Riders on the Storm because they uh, we're trying to find something that had a little more of the surfing element. Um, they named it that after the Doors song, but still feeling that it had nothing to do with the movie. They finally hit upon the term Point Break, 
which uh, a point break, Pete, do you know what a point break is? You know, only because I was hoping to stump you with what a point break is. Oh, excellent. So a point break is is the point where the the wave as it's coming into shore or really coming in anywhere when it hits that underground uh, 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 underwater uh, rise, it hits that and that's what causes the wave to break. And I will say that was actually something going back to the remake that I found interesting is that they have these, they went out to these point breaks that were out like in the middle of the ocean, but where there was like an under underwater, like a, a rise, like an underwater mountain or something. And that when a big storm would hit, you'd have these, the, the water would come and then it would hit and make these waves like out in the middle of nowhere. And that was a really oh. cool element um, that I thought was cool because they'd all go out in these boats to go find these like these waves in the middle of nowhere to surf on. It was kind of cool. That's fantastic. Yeah, like cool uh, like I imagine like a you know at the, on the edge of a trench or something you know like right exactly yeah that's right. crazy. So anyway, uh, yeah, that was it though as far as this movie uh, getting the kickstart. And uh, but was it what's interesting is Ka- uh, James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow. Even though they did rework the script, and we always talk about our uh, our pals over at the WGA and the uh, complicated world that they lead as far as trying to attribute who's getting writing credit on any given film. Um, because uh, I, I, I don't know if it's just because of their late entry into participation or what, but apparently there was an unresolved issue with the WGA and neither Cameron nor Bigelow got to get any writing credits on this. It all went to Peter Eiliff with the story credit by Eiliff and King. All right, Dan, let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Yes, let's do it. Let's jump on in. This is the uh, this is the the pursuit of Bodhi and team after a, a robbery, and uh, it includes a handheld running chase through the neighborhoods, the alleys of uh, Los Angeles. And it's very, very cool. Happens at about an hour three, hour four into the movie. Just to clarify, it actually starts with a car chase and then it turns into a foot chase. And then there's a a, a gas pump turned into a (laughs) flamethrower. Then then there's and rolling in fire. And and then there's throwing dogs at people. That's true. That's that's true. My favorite part is the foot chase. That's why it's, it includes yeah, yeah. the foot chase. And you're right. The dog, the foot chase also includes the throwing dog at person. Uh, yes. Great way. And to it ends. The dog to use. It, <laughs> it ends in the falling into the L.A. canals and the shooting guns at the sky and screaming. Yes. The fantastic hot fuzz yes. moment. It so is much. the hot fuzz moment. So yes, you're right. To clarify, it includes a lot more than my favorite part, but it is it is there. It does. I, I think the <laughs> gas station thing. Uh, I, I love that so much because uh, it it was so lovingly recreated in Zoolander. Oh, was it? What? Oh, was it? <laughs> I Andy. Yeah, Zoolander is a movie I uh, very intentionally forgot after I watched it. Oh my god. We'll come. We'll come <laughs> back to that. Uh, so anyway, this sequence, why does this sequence uh, represent uh, a good one to, to anchor this conversation, Andy? Well, this scene does represent um, a, a very critical element of the film, which is the bank robbery. You've got uh, the complicated relationship, and this is where everything is really revealed as far as Johnny Utah 
he's actually not just a surf and friend. He is actually an FBI agent. And you get all of this coming together in this uh, action sequence, which also really highlights Catherine Bigelow as an action director, as somebody who really knows how to uh, take these elements of action and bring them together in a very visceral and exciting way, but a way that is very understandable. You kind of know everything that's going on. It's clear. Um, and you still, through the whole thing, really stay connected to all of the people involved. And I'm always impressed the fact that you stay so connected to Bodhi when he's wearing a Ronald Reagan mask through the whole thing. But you get to that end and you see that close up of him as he's looking and as he and uh, Utah are looking at each other and that just extreme close up of Bodhi's eyes as, through the mask as he's looking. I mean, you can really feel everything going on there. It's it's really just incredible uh, direction and storytelling. I totally agree. And and that is, I think, in that foot chase, I think that's the only thing that we see that was actually Patrick Swayze. I think it is, yeah. Um, the uh, but largely indistinguishable. I think it's a, a, a you know amazing stunt work. I the um, uh, but I think what's really great about this whole sequence is that it's uh, it it is an obligatory scene, right? We have the it, it is the uh, the the handoff of power in the narrative where one side uh, the the of the chase discovers the true identity and the other side does not. Right. We we don't we, we know that like Utah probably has an idea, but not 100 percent clear. And now we know that Bodhi does. Bodhi knows exactly what's going on. And so I, I think that in the scene right before this, that that is when he that is when uh, uh, Utah figured it all out when they were on the beach. He sees him. He sees him mooning. He sees that guy moving, mooning somebody and. All the little bits and pieces come crashing down on him, and it all is clear. Yeah, I, he, I like hear that. I don't think it's as clear as – it's not as clear as it would be if he'd just seen him without the – take the mask off, right? He hasn't seen that yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I just didn't feel 100% clear. I would think if it had been 100% clear, he would not have been the first one to run, you know, his face open toward the, the crew in the masks. I think I think that yeah, he would not have done that. So I I think that's a this is an obligatory scene, right? Where we have this on the grand unveiling, and the the chase is so great, and and maybe it's even better if if they both know that Bodhi keeps the mask on the whole time. You know, like he still thinks he's he's uh, you know hiding something, or uh, you know I don't know that he has a one up, uh, and and maybe that's the part of the handoff that is not clear is that Bodhi doesn't know that Utah knows who he is under the mask. That's possible. Somebody does not yeah, know something, possible. Andy, and that's what I want to get across. I don't know, because you get to the end of this foot chase, and I mean... They have... The, that's the most important part. If he knew, then uh, he wouldn't have shot him. But if he didn't know, he would have shot him. So I think it's clear that they all know, well, I, they all I know think what's going by on the, here. That, A lot of subtext. <laughs> I think by the time they get to that final moment with the close-ups <laughs> on the eyeballs, that is the grand realization that all sides are now clear and in the open. That's my that's what I think why yeah. that that's what I'm leading up to here, that that uh, exchange leading up to the firing the gun in the air is the, you know, the pivotal scene in their relationship, because that it, it cements the fact that they have been untrue to one another. They now know of this betrayal and they have to move forward in this new world. OK. And now they get to be now they have to go skydiving. <laughs> now they have to go. <laughs> They're going to celebrate by being really nice to each other. 
no, I, it's, I, I think that's an interesting take on it. I mean, I still think that, that everybody knew as soon as they, they walked into that particular scene, what was happening. But again, I, I think it allows for, you know, a, a lot of interesting subtext to be happening. You've got one side that's all in masks and they've just robbed this bank. And then you have these, these two FBI guys pursuing them. And it, it does allow for some interesting stuff to happen. And uh, whether it's the car chase or the foot chase or or the race through the canals or whatever part it is or wrestling in the fire, I, I think that it just it allows for a, just a lot of opportunity for uh, Bigelow to really kind of play with with everything going on here and to give us something that's that I felt was very unique. I mean, watching watching um i can't remember what they called the camera like the pogo cam i think is what they called it yeah as yeah. as the as the uh, steady cam operator is racing along with whether it's Bodie or utah or both through these little um passageways between houses or through houses or down sidewalks or crossroads or whatever um it was just it, it was just really exciting and and i really felt connected to all of the action happening that is the real highlight to me, which is using the the way they use the camera, uh, and and keep it nice and uh, both you know allows us to be focused on the subject as they're running like crazy uh, through these streets and up and over fences and throwing the camera up over the fence essentially you know to keep up with these actors who are, are running and jumping and they're they're crazed and yet you can totally keep a sense of of you know where the action is where you're supposed to be following and it just it makes so much sense. It's so it makes so much visual sense. There's none of that sort of jiggly monkey nonsense that that we have to fight through in in you know a lot of films. It actually reminded me, in uh, retrospect, of the fantastic um, single camera, effectively um, action work that we got in the Secret in Their Eyes, where through the soccer stadium, um, that was just an amazing opportunity to really kind of get like throw us directly into the action and really see everything that was happening um that was an incredibly uh effective way to play that scene and i think bigelow with cuts does as effective a job here i i think you're right and and that example is man it it's really appropriate especially when you look at what they what they could have done and what another director might have done uh around the sort of being you know, pushed around in a crowd in the secret in their eyes, you know, as we're in the stadium. And instead, no, that that movie is uh, that sequence is super solid, just like this one. Like it is super solid from the moment they jump out of the, uh, you know, the the back of the van to uh, the moment we're, you know, stopped in the canal. And, and, you know, you mentioned kind of getting pushed around in the crowd. That was something else that I found so um, exhilarating about this was the way that she played with all of the extras and all the other people through this chase where you have these women kind of in whether it's watering their front yard or doing the laundry in their house who kind of get just just plowed over by Bodie as he races by or the kids on the bicycles that that almost uh, the Utah almost runs into or the guy in the garbage truck um, or again the dog I mean there were so many um, uh, obstacles for them to to kind of fight through I, I found it just really kind of fun the way that they uh, kept playing with everything that was going on it wasn't an empty environment for them to race through it was full of people as it really would be uh, keanu reeves obviously is central to this uh, as johnny utah he is uh, 
you know, he's a great athlete. He is. And what I think is interesting is this is really kind of the start of his action career. I mean, this was his first action movie. And man, uh, I think that it's it's interesting looking at the line from what he does here all the way through like the John Wick films and the Matrix yeah. films and everything. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting uh, line and career path for him. Swayze as Bodhi, uh, also strong. Interesting, my memory of Swayze is that he's a much bigger dude. He is not that just giant of a person, right? He's not like the rock giant, uh, but he's just very fit, but totally, uh, I think he nails the chill uh, Zen Master vibe here. You know, Patrick Swayze, uh, I mean, he was kind of very much that guy that everyone was swooning over at the time. I mean, he had just done uh, Dirty Dancing a few years before and Roadhouse and Next of Kin and Ghost. So whether it was like the raw action films or the kind of the amazing dance films that he was doing or just the romance of Ghost and, and just kind of all of that sort of stuff, like he was an actor who I think really showed all those wonderful sides of what he could do and and being raised kind of a dancer and all of the stuff that that brought to him as an actor and then putting him into a surf bank robbery film it's like that background i think was just perfect for him it was exactly what he he needed to embody bodhi Oh, it absolutely was. I you know, I started talking with folks that we were doing this movie, and um, there uh, many of them had forgotten that he passed away back in 2009, uh, fighting pancreatic cancer for a long time, and he really deteriorated at the end. It was a very sad loss. He was, I think, he was just a a great talent and and uh, super fun to watch him at his real prime. Yeah. And as you mentioned, like we hardly see him in this chase because yeah. he's wearing his Reagan mask. And and at the time they shot this, uh, Swayze was actually in Europe doing uh, uh, his press tour for Ghost. And so the vast majority of the scene that we're watching, it's all Scott Wilder, who is his stunt double. So, uh, But he does just as good during the running as I'm sure Swayze would have. <laughs> well, he really does. And even Swayze signed off on it because Swayze, you know, as, as you mentioned, he, do, he does his own stuff right he he really wanted to do this run and uh but uh but even he signed off he says yeah that looks like me he did a great job so yeah there you go um uh, gary Busey as pappas yep he's uh i mean he's not uh his part in the scene is uh you know not huge i, I think what cracks me up about him though is he's really the impetus that kicks off the scene um, as it begins, because he is, uh, you know, they're they're on a stakeout essentially, waiting to see if these guys are going to show up to rob the bank, and uh, it and he knows that there's this sandwich shop around the corner, and obsessively tells uh, tells Utah, go buy me two of their meatball subs because they're the best in the world. <laughs> and, no, you got to get two of them, two, two sandwiches, two. two sandwiches. <laughs> It's like the strangest way to kick off the scene, but it yeah. actually was really funny. And it allowed for Keanu to be out of the car and, you know, it, it set it set up the the uh, the situation well, but it was <laughs> such a strange start to the scene. It's, it's a strange start and a strange use of comedy, right? It becomes yeah. a little bit slapstick because he's Keanu's at the at the sandwich place and he's like the the car pulls up behind them over his shoulder and he never looks. Right. Uh, and I think that's just uh, that's really Really great. Um, you mentioned that he had, um, uh, you know, he he had his terrible injury uh, in '88, and so he was he was out for a little while. Uh, this was really, I mean, right in the middle of of his 
career. I mean, he has he's done a probably uh, I, I can't. I can't tell if he's done more since then. Uh, where this falls in the in the the sort of litany of 174 credits that uh, that Gary Busey has to his name, the guy is an amazingly prolific actor and uh, just a lot of fun to watch his crazy on screen. He has cornered, absolutely cornered the market on this kind of crazy to the point where I I don't care that he was in Sharknado four. I don't care. <laughs> I'd I'd put him in Point Break three. Uh, and I'd be just uh, as happy. Do you think it was confusing for him uh, that he was in Point Break, and then a few years later he was in Breaking Point? Break, breaking Point. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, Andy? Better question. Do you think he ever bothered to ask a question about that? Do you think he I'm knows most of the titles of the things that uh, that he's in anymore? I don't think he oh, cares. Gary. Oh, Gary. I love Gary Busey, and and it gives me a chance to say, uh, uh, you know, we've talked about Gary Busey before, and uh, you should search YouTube for uh, the. Uh, Gary Busey and G.A. Lorda Sartain uh, TV show because they they grew up in in, in their their formative years on television in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Gary Busey, <laughs> G.A. Lorda Sartain, Gaylord Sartain. Uh, they did some great coach uh, football player comedy. Very funny. Yeah. Well, then then as far <laughs> as the uh, the the rest of the troupe. Uh, in uh, in uh, Swayze's gang, we've got James LaGrosse as Roach. Uh, returning. Nice to see him again. He yeah. made it through Near Dark. He apparently. did, and uh, Bigelow brought him along. John uh-huh. Philbin as Nathaniel and Bo Jesse Christopher as Gromit. And those last two are the real surfers that they uh, cast to uh, be a part of this. And So you know, smart, so smart to well, put these guys in that crew. What I found impressive was that they actually cast real surfers, but they actually could carry scenes. Like when they were sitting around the fire and uh, Gromit is like, you know, kind of afraid. He's like concerned that something's going to go wrong. It's like, I really bought it. It wasn't just some bad actor who yeah. who happens to be a good surfer. It's like they actually did a good job. Camera, Donald Peterman was behind the camera. Yeah, we already talked a little bit about the Pogo cam, but it was basically a really, it was a 35 millimeter camera, but they really kind of took as much off of it as they could. And they basically had it on a gyro stabilizer from a Steadicam with a, a loop on top. So uh, James Murrow, the Steadicam operator, um, could um, see what he was doing while he was running as fast as he could, either in front of or behind the actors. So um, pretty interesting little setup they devised that I imagine has been uh, utilized and cleaned up in all the various easy rigs and everything else yeah. they have these days. You know, speaking of clever rigs, do you want to talk a little bit about how, even though it wasn't in this sequence, how they ended up shooting uh, many of the principal skydiving close-ups? Yeah, it was really cool to see because I was really impressed with the skydiving footage, um, the way that they intercut real skydivers with the actors. Uh, and what they did for the actors, they had them on on these uh, these rigs. They were kind of like um, uh, crane rigs that had these, these telescoping arms and they had a platform and the actors were in their uh, outfits and there was kind of a, a, a platform kind of that they were laying on built into their outfit and they were propped up and they had a giant fans underneath them blowing up and then the camera was also on one of these telescoping arms and it was kind of it had that loose movement and then they would just shoot them um, with just nothing but sky in the background to get these uh, these shots that looked like they were um, really skydiving and having these conversations in midair um, really clever very smart way to do it 
Yeah, it really was. It was it and seamless. You know, it it reminded me actually weirdly of Mary Poppins uh and the laughing sequence. Um you know, oh, the way yeah, they right. did all those sorts of clever platforms and 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 things to shoot the um to shoot the floating sequences. It reminded me just I just exactly of of that setup. So, um uh, it was a, f- a funny little throwback. Um Production design, Peter Jameson, uh, along with hair and makeup, uh, uh, Paul Abascal, hair, Weston, Greg LaCava, Michael Mills, makeup. The uh, the entire, I, I really, I mean, I just bought the world uh, that they had set up. I even bought Patrick Swayze's hair. Well, his hair was just, I mean, that's what made. <laughs> what that's made why, that's why you bring Swayze. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was just crazy Swayze hair. Specifically to our scene that we really should mention is Glenn Wilder, the stunt coordinator, and just the amazing work he did uh, in rehearsals ahead of time, training these actors to be able to uh, do these uh, as many of the stunts themselves as possible. And I think my hunch, I don't know if this is really the case, but knowing how Keanu Reeves has really kind of adopted that uh, into kind of what we he, we see him now bringing to the table in his action films, I, I feel like it's probably all started here. And just that whole idea of wanting to be in the action, wanting to really get that sense and working with the stunt coordinator to really kind of find the uh, tools that he needed to have in order to pull it off himself. It, to that point, you, you know, I want to bring up Howard E. Smith, who who was behind the editing of the film, uh, in working with Donald Peterman and and tr- the, under the the auspices of making sense of of the sequence. There are some there are a number of elements in here that you could just get plowed over visually if they if they weren't cut right. And and the dog you brought up the dog, uh, in particular, that is very fast. Uh, and and yet I don't ever feel like I lose it. Yeah, and it has to be fast, especially because it's obviously not a real dog. Um, it's completely faked. Um, yeah. But they do that so well where I, w- I was completely convinced that it was a dog until I, I went through and watched it a few times. And the, the credits, you know, point out clearly that it wasn't. It's not cetera, a dog, right. Yeah. No. Right. And so, uh, but yeah, just the way that it's edited with the, and the sound, the way that that's mixed in too. I mean, you're completely convinced that that's exactly what just happened. Uh, and and Howard Smith is a pretty regular editor for for uh, Bigelow and did um, Near Dark, in fact, and and um, uh, and Cameron, too. He did The Abyss and Strange Days and kind of old hat. Well, and and, uh, you know, Glenn Wilder, you know, did stunts with uh, James Cameron on True uh, True Lies. And so mm-hmm. he's so again, it's it's a lot of that same club and everything. So right, and right. sadly, Glenn Wilder um, did just pass away last year. Um, he was probably in the uh, in memoriam, actually. Yeah. Now that I think about it, uh, although they skipped a lot of people. So who knows? They did. Who knows? What you think of uh, of the music? Good action score. You know, it's it's uh, it, it was kind of a light um 90s action score particularly in this sequence there's not a lot of music in fact a lot of it's just the sound effects and the in the world the music does kick in a couple times and it's you know i think mark isham does a fine job with the music here it never completely blew me away i think what worked better for me um in the case of this particular film was the 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 soundtrack you know i i felt like Bigelow and her team found some really great songs that worked well for the context of this movie, whether it's uh, Jimi Hendrix or Concrete Blonde or Rat of all things, you know, or uh, or Public Image, uh, uh, just a lot of great songs that worked really well in context of the movie. That's just crazy, crazy mashups, Andy. 
That's practically Eddie Vedder singing Tom Petty. <laughs> practically. Things that you just it would never happen. <laughs> we got a few little notes of interest. Notes of interest, Andy. Facts and tidbits that you have uncovered due to your cinema sleuthing. And the first involves the uh, the the Bodhi uh, parachute jump. Right. When, uh, when Utah ju- has no parachute and jumps out of the plane to uh, catch up with Bodhi. Mythbusters actually uh, did their own little uh, busting of this myth, and they determined that um, Utah and Bodhi would not have been able to free fall for as long as they did, which was close to 90 seconds, nor would they have been able to have a conversation in midair. It is a little too loud. You can't actually hear people that well while you're falling. <laughs> the wind is a little, little <laughs> noisy. Um, but they did say that Utah could conceivably have caught up with Bodhi. Uh, if, the way that um, skydivers can kind of position their bodies, he could have streamlined his body so that he would shoot down and actually catch up with Bodhi. Right. So, if uh, Bodhi didn't know, that's legit. Like, I yeah. can buy that. I buy yeah, it. Absolutely. absolutely. I've always wondered that whole leg lock thing, you know. Like, if you're just holding on to a guy in a parachute right. and the parachute, you're going to let go. I'm just yeah, I saying. Think- I think I, I don't think you'd be letting go. I think you'd be ripped. You'd be ripped. Your much. arms would be just ripped, torn asunder, Andy. <laughs> torn asunder. Uh, th- this is the uh, this is another uh, opportunity for uh, Keanu to uh, play a football star. Yes, that's right. This is his second, his the first of two movies where he plays a former Ohio State quarterback. The other movie was The Replacements that he was in. I think I had a good time with that movie. I don't I think I hated that, that movie. movie. I, I don't it. think I hated it. It's very light. Yeah. If I recall, very light. I might need to see it again. This is something you found that I did not know anything about. Point Break Live. What is that? Well, you did know about it because we have talked about it on the show before, although I cannot remember where. I don't know if it was when we talked about The Matrix or when we talked about Strange Days or something, but we did bring this up at some point in some past show. Maybe an eagle eared listener. Can you say eagle eared? No. Is that weird? I don't think that's a thing. What would you what would you say? Bat eared uh, listener? Bat eared, maybe bat eared or elephant eared. <laughs> elephant eared. Yeah, you know? I, I just don't think we're painting our, our listeners with a pretty light here. But they're still they still make out better than we do. Yeah. Sharp eared. Yeah, that's good. Sharp sharp yes, good. <laughs> may recall and let us know where we talked about Point Break Live, but this is a cult theater thing that uh, originated um, because people were so inspired by the movie. And basically what happens is uh, they put on the show, but the role of Johnny Utah is played by an audience member chosen by uh, the crowd after they do a quick little audition. And then for the duration of the play, this Keanu performer has to read all of their lines from cue cards <laughs> to quote capture the rawness of a Keanu Reeves performance even from those who generally think themselves incapable of acting <laughs> <laughs> well it's awesome uh. and you're right I really really don't remember us talking about that and I'm sure I loved it then as much as I love the whole concept right now tonight that's I fantastic want to go see that me it would be too <laughs> I wonder how they do the foot chase. Do you think they throw yeah. a dog on stage? Maybe they just run back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, maybe. Uh, this is no Tarantino script, but apparently you've been doing some counting. Oh, uh, yes. They do say the F word uh, 105 times in this that's, film. So that's something. Earning that's something. their R. 
is what you say. Ernie how Marrar. to do how to do an award season. This is one of those movies that's not getting the Oscar nominations. Uh, what? Pete. I'm I know. shocked. I know. I know. But you know who uh, did nominate the film? Everybody's favorite. The MTV Movie Awards. Oh. That's right. Everybody's favorite award. <laughs> Everybody's yes. favorite. The movie was nominated not one, not two, but three MTV Movie Awards. Uh, both Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze got nominated for Most Desirable Male. Only one could take the award home, Pete, and it was Keanu. Keanu was the Most Desirable Male by the MTV Movie Award crowd back in wait, 1991. Wait, wait, wait. Where do you stand on that? Oh, Swayze all the way. Really? Swayze, You're a Swayze? Way, Oh, yeah. Oh, I think I'm a Keanu. <laughs> I'm a Keanu, but I have the benefit of John Wick. You do. Yes, you do. Maybe, had I, had this been 1991, us having this conversation, maybe, maybe I would have agree, I would have said. I wonder if it's we had possible, this conversation in 1991. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, the other award it was nominated for was the Best Action Sequence Award. And that was for the second jump from the plane where Utah catches Bodie falling, which we just talked about. Um, but it did lose to the L.A. freeway chase in Terminator 2, which also beat out the helicopter blade sequence from Last Boy Scout, which I don't even remember from when we talked about that movie. And it also beat out Backdraft and The Hard Way. So. Uh, at the, uh, it's not at the very end on the, on top of the sign. Oh, right. He falls. He knocks the guy off and the guy falls and goes right through the helicopter Through the helicopter blade. blades. Okay. Yeah. Now we've already talked about the remake, uh, 2015 remake, but uh, was there news of a point break, actual point break two? You know, they had actually considered making a Point Break 2 with Keanu reprising his role and actually Patrick Swayze reprising his role as Bodhi, apparently having survived that massive wave at the end of the film. Um, but unfortunately, because of uh, the real life death of Patrick Swayze, it put an end to the plans and uh, that's it. Never ended up happening. And I don't think the remake did well enough where it's going to warrant a sequel. My hopes are dashed. How to do in the box office. Well, Bigelow was given a cool $24 million to make her surfing heist movie, which is about $42.5 million in today's dollars. Her movie was given a prime summer weekend to open July 12, 1991, opposite Disney's 101 Dalmatians re-release, Boys in the Hood, and Regarding Henry. None of those films, however, could topple Bigelow's then-husband's liquid metal juggernaut, Terminator 2, which was in its second week of release and easily held the number one spot for two more weeks. Considering the film's status, though, it's surprising that both the 101 Dalmatians re-release and Boys in the Hood beat uh, Point Breakout. In fact, Point Break fell out of the top 10 after just three weeks. But that being said, the movie still found its audience, raking in $43.2 million domestically and $40.3 million internationally, giving it a total adjusted gross of $147.8 million and adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $864,000. Another win for Bigelow. In fact, it was her highest grossing film until Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, I buy that. Yeah. I had a good time with this movie, Andy. I, there is some ridiculous stuff in it, but I had a good time at this movie. It, it's some great action directing. The surfing was fun. The casting was great. Uh, the the uh, uh, love interest was not the typical, you know, dumb bimbo character. It was a character that was rich and textured. And, uh, and in fact, the uh, mono-a-mono nature of the... the uh, you know, the heist cop 
relationship was strong for me here. It's no heat, uh, but it definitely uh, deserves to be in the same category. Although heat was really missing a wrestle between its two uh, two people in the waves of Australia. True, true. Could have used a wrestle. We didn't get that. It could have had a good it old wrestle in the water. Yeah. yeah. And, we, you know, we didn't actually talk about the final scene in, in this movie. And uh, when essentially Johnny Utah sends Bodie off to die in the cold hands of the great Neptune. I, I love it. I think it's a the perfect end for a film, uh, for yeah. the film and everything that they're doing here. It is a perfect end to this film. I think that's it. I think it's great. Yeah. No hard feelings. No, and you're right. I mean, I had a blast watching this film. This is easily a film I would return to and watch again. Um, I still have some issues with it, but, uh, you know, this is why we are doing our Bigelow series again, because she can take a film that otherwise would have been kind of a, a, a pretty subpar 90s action film and does something interesting with it that makes it exciting to watch. So I, I was very thrilled to have this on our uh, on the charts uh, this time. Me too. All right. With that, Andy, it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, you will see uh, our list of all of the movies that we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap flickchart, it'll take you over to this movie on flickchart where you can add it to your list. And let's see how your ranking stacks up to our ranking. Andy? First up, we have Point Break or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. This is the Numi version, not the Rooney version. I am I am Dragon Tattoo. <laughs> I'm almost yeah. point break on this one. Yeah, but almost is not point break. No, yeah, but I, I feel like yeah, I am point almost break. is not. No, I think you said almost. Mm. You said I, almost. I did. I know mm. I did. But I feel I like I, I feel like I'm going with point break. I'm I'm pretty hardcore dragon tattoo on this. I think I can I think we have to actually open the bidding by going to no, that. I, I will give it to you. I, I'm I'm hesitant to, but I am gonna give it to you. All right. But yeah, man, I just I had so much fun with this movie. All right, Point Break or Atlantic City? Easily Point Break for me. Easily Point Break. Yeah, I like they they're showing the Spanish poster, and in Spanish it's called "They Call Him Bodhi." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. Uh, that's a great title. All what right, is, Point Break. What is Point Break literally like transliterated in Spanish? Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious about that. I don't know. Pointo Breco. <laughs> I, I don't think I that's speak what it is. no Spanish. <laughs> Point Break or King's Row? Point Break for me. Point Break. Point Break or Midnight Run? Oh, Midnight Run for me. Mid- midnight Run, yeah. I'm surprised that for some reason that you picked Midnight Run. You should be, but I In my head, I feel Grodin. like you didn't like that one. No, no, I love Groden. <laughs> I know where this one's going for you. Point Break or Field of Dreams? Absolutely <laughs> Field of Dreams for me. Pointo Preco. <laughs> well, this one we are gonna have to go to the mountain. Yeah, let's do it. All right, here we go. One, one two, two, three. three rock. Paper. Oh, all right. Fair and square. Point break or what's up, Doc? Ooh, that's uh, a tough one. It's not that hard for me. It's point break, but I could be pushed. Yeah, I'm gonna say point break, but uh it still is a tough one. Like what's up, Doc? Um stuck really well in my head. That sounds weird. <laughs> Stuck yeah. well in my head. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's that's how it is. All right. Point Break or The Great Wall? Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That shocked me. 
Yeah, Point Break. <laughs> I'd forgotten uh, we even talked about we, that movie. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, Point Break or Infernal Affairs. Infernal Affairs. I'm going to say Point Break. Really? I have issues in both of the films, uh, but I'm still going to say Point Break. Oh, that's uh, I'm a little disappointed. I'm willing to be swayed. Are you willing to be for swayzied? money? Swayzied. <laughs> willing to be swayzied. <laughs> I, I just think you. I, I just think that the Infernal Affairs came across with so much more gravitas and uh, and the execution. Literally, the execution was such a dramatic and fantastic turn in that movie that uh, uh, that it just really sticks with me. It was a great, great film. Yeah, you're right. You swayzied me. <sighs> All right. Well, that puts Point Break at 205 on our chart. 205 out of 342. So it's not uh, not super high. It's at about 40%. But um, again, we have talked about a lot of movies that we really love. We have. And I think, uh, you know, once you get over that that point, I, it actually, I don't know. On What did it do on your personal uh, flick chart? Again, my personal flick chart, I don't think it ended up as high as uh, I I was thinking it would have. It, it landed at 1440 out of 3930, so that's about a 63%. Um, I personally feel like it would have uh, been higher, but again, there's just a lot of movies I really like. You know, it's that's fascinating because it ended up at 367 uh, on my list out of 1013, which is almost exactly the same. It's about 64%. And it... it if I were to go by the algorithm, uh, the flick chart algorithm, that should be three stars over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. And that feels a little bit low to me. Maybe not too low, but a little bit low. Yeah, I, I'm really surprised how much I liked this movie. I'm giving it four stars and a like. Four stars, really? Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's everything that it needed to be. Yes, it has some issues as far as uh, the romance uh, relationship, as far as the relationship with uh, Keanu's boss. But on the whole, this is just a delightful movie. So absolutely, four out of five. All right, you've swayzied me, Andy. You've swayzied me. Four, four <laughs> out of five and a like. There it is, folks. Point break. <laughs> uh, who knew? Uh, and where did uh, where did Point Break 2015 end up for you on the star rating? Uh, that's a great question, Pete. It ended up at three stars. And really, it was just because it, as much as the story kind of um, largely falls flat for me, it was still a really fun movie to watch. It has a lot of really exciting action sequences. I thought they did a great job uh, putting all of the action bits together. Um I, I struggle with the relationship. It's one that I feel is going to be much more quickly forgotten. Um, but uh, but it still was fun. All right. I was well, really surprised that I liked it as much as I did. I'm going to check it out. You're going on vacation so I can catch up on some movies that you gave me to watch and then didn't give me the time to watch them. So this is going to be one of them. Excellent. And uh, apart from that, Andy, uh, we're done now with Point Break. We're leaving the ocean. We're leaving the water. Where do we go from here? Yeah, we're we're leaving the water and we're going right over to Detroit. Just where <laughs> just where we wanted to go for vacation after the beach. That's what you do. You go to Detroit. Okay. All right. Well, I really look forward to this. Have you seen it yet? I have. Yes. I, I just watched it from the first time a few days ago. Excellent. Excellent. I'm very curious I, to talk about. This is her film that she just did last year. Yeah, yeah, this gets us uh, pretty current. So, uh, you know, that's part of the reason I'm really interested in seeing this is to see some to see the, the to, to close the gap between you know 1991 or you know near dark 
before that and see how she has grown. Again, that's one of the things that I, I really appreciated about our see or, or the last time we talked about Bigelow. And um, uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to watching this. So uh, that's it. We'll talk about it next cool. week. All right. Uh, the next reel could not happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart uh, over in Scotland running the Instagram stuff and Ben Steerick helping out over there. Ben Lott uh, at the Blot Spot runs all things on Twitter. Next reel theme is Ragtime Instrumental uh, by Eli Catlin, which you can find on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, Andy, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth handy. As Amazon always doeth. Well, clearly there is a gap between uh, our impression of the film and those over on the Amazon one-star category. Um, they, oh, yeah. There were some people who didn't like their the actual manufacturing of the tapes or the DVDs, but there was a, there's a healthy basket, a bouquet of people who legitimately don't like this movie. Oh, yes, there are. Yeah. Why don't you, why don't you kick us off? Sure. My one star is by somebody named Conservative Viewpoint. (laughs) This was a horrible movie, to say the least. I was greatly disappointed. It was highly immoral, and most of the people hardly had any clothes on. Besides that kind of stuff, the movie portrayed the rebellious, thieving bad guys as the good guys. By the end of the movie, you actually started to feel sorry for the bad guys. Not worth anyone's time. He didn't seem to be conservative in his viewpoint at all. He didn't hold anything back. Or maybe that was, maybe (laughs) I'm missing the point. Look at you. Uh, Very funny. Oh, dear. Well, mine, I I think I'm going to go with a triumph over marketing, over filmmaking. This film is very, very silly. Fair enough if the viewer wishes to see a film that has not even a tenuous link to reality. Poorly made, poor attention to detail, real-life representation, and sloppy continuity that is inexcusable in a movie of this budget. My advice to those that go gooey at the mention of Swayze and Reeves, do yourself a favor and buy a poster. And watch that for a couple of hours instead. Wow. There's you some know, advice for you. Not terrible advice. The poster is hot. <laughs> Just saying. It is if very you hunky. can afford if you can afford the movie and the poster, that is still your best bet. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season seven, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. (laughs) Nice. I own this game. We shall see. Here we go, starting with an easy one. The Millennium Trilogy. (laughs) Seriously? The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Die Hard. Uh, well, Die Hard 1 and 2. 
except Nothing Lasts Forever, which is where Die Hard came from, isn't on Audible. What? Crime of the Century! Okay, 1968 musicals. Uh, Mary Poppins. Nice. We've covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like East of Eden, Giant. Or All You Zombies, upon which Predestination was based. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible.